Hello, and welcome to the Physical Preparation Podcast. I'm your host, Mike Robertson, and I'll be joined on the line later today by the Eric Cressy. Now, before we jump into this week's show, I want to give you a quick recap of the week that was, starting with arguably not even arguably, the single most important part of last week. My wife and I actually celebrated our 15-year wedding anniversary. So pretty big deal. Got married August 14th, 2004. If you really want to take it all the way back, we actually started dating six years before that. I was 19 years old. I am now 41. So all in, we're looking at 21 to 22 years of being together. Thankfully, she puts up with me. She is the most amazing woman I have ever met, and I would not be where I'm at today without her. So huge, huge deal celebrating 15 years last week. Um, Beyond that, you know, kiddos are killing it at school. They love school every single day. They're excited to go. Uh, As far as the sportsing world goes, Cade had his first soccer game last weekend, took a little bit of motivation to get him going. I don't know what uh, what was going on there, but man, he got going, scored two goals, so he was pretty fired up. Kendall, absolutely crushing it in softball. The amount of progress this girl has seen from last spring to this fall has been just astounding. And I would love to say it's because we were in the, the yard every day working on her game, but you know, it just wasn't the case. We'd get out there maybe once a week over the summer, but man, she has seen massive progress and literally she's hitting the ball every time. She may not get on base. I think maybe, you know, every now and then somebody will get her out, but every time she's putting the bat on the ball and just really crushing it. And most importantly, having a ton of fun. So kiddos are doing great. Hoops starting to wind down a little bit for me on the coaching side. We got guys that are kind of in and out. They're getting ready for training camp or, you know, they got to go to whatever city they're going to live in and find housing. So that's slowing down, which is (laughs) a little bit disappointing. It's been such a good summer. We've had such a great run with these guys. But this is kind of where I transform into support staff. I've talked about it with Ramsey a couple weeks ago. I talked about it with Chris Chase. At this point in the season, you know, in our off season, that is, it's really just making sure these guys feel good, they feel fresh, they're well conditioned, they're explosive, and they are ready to go in and just crush training camp. So that is the weekend review. Want to give you a little bit of an update on the complete coach certification. I am really trying to pull all this together. You know, anytime you put a deadline on something. When people saw all the stuff that was in it, they were like, oh yeah, this should be good for like an October, November launch. And I said, well, I'm launching first week in September. So we got to knock this baby out. So I'm working on all the back end work, tying up the loose ends. My guy, Paul Rutan is getting all the videos exported and uploaded to Vimeo. My guy, Matt Sizemore is doing all his stuff on the back end, getting everything lined up. So it looks pretty. There's a lot of support materials beyond just the videos. So there's a ton of stuff there. Now, one thing I did want to mention here, because I've gotten some people that asked, hey, if I bought physical prep, is it different? Yes, absolutely. There's actually just a ton of differences, Um, just a ton more content. It's a lot more polished. And if you did buy physical prep, make sure to check your email. I sent out an email earlier this week just to kind of let you know, I'm going to make sure I take care of you for your support. So if you did not buy physical prep, number one, shame on you. But number two, if you want to get the complete coach cert, when it comes out at a hefty discount, get on the insiders list, go to completecoachcertification.com. You can get on the insiders list there. Everybody that is on that list will get early access to the product and they're going to have the opportunity to save $200 if they buy in that insiders list kind of access period. So make sure you get on that ASAP because the insiders list launch will start on Tuesday, September 3rd. So I may kill myself in the process, but it will be launching on that day. So that covers the week in review, a little bit of an update on the complete coach cert. Now, before we can jump into uh, this show with Eric, I want to give you a deep thought. And my deep thought for this week really kind of piggybacks on last week. So last week we talked about continuing to challenge yourself, whether it's in the professional ranks or maybe it's in your personal life in certain areas where you're weak or certain areas where you may want to grow. So this kind of piggybacks on that. And this week I want you to think about putting yourself out there, right? And it's subtly different than challenging yourself because you can challenge yourself and never really have any stakes, 
right? Or any expectation set other than to yourself. When you put yourself out there, you know, you're kind of exposed for lack of a better word. You're really kind of putting everything out there and letting the world kind of judge, you know, what you've done or the quality of your work. And I want to start with a little bit of a story because, you know, luckily I started off really dumb and really ignorant in this industry. When I think back to 2002, 2003, when I first started writing, I was writing for this small powerlifting magazine at the time called Monster Muscle. And so luckily, as somebody that was working towards a master's degree, they valued my information. I thought, thought I knew something about training at that point in time. And luckily, they allowed me to to cut my teeth and to get some articles out in the world. And then it really got real in 2003 when I got that first article published for T Nation. I believe it was called Old School Triceps. And, you know, it had a lot of bravado. It had a lot of flair. I don't know if it was of the highest quality, but, you know, luckily I was ignorant, you know, because at that point in time, I just knew I wanted to share a message. I knew I wanted to help people. And that's something that I've always wanted to do, whether it's training, whether it's coaching, whether it's in the gym, whether it's with the little kids that I coach in soccer and softball. I just enjoy helping people. But, you know, I think there there are times when you just have to put yourself out there and you have to be exposed. And, you know, I continue to do it to this day. Like I think about, you know, again, I'm doing this with the complete coach cert. Like I'm super excited about it. I know how much time and effort I put into it. I think it's awesome, but you know what? I don't know. Maybe I'm going to launch it and like two people want to buy it and the rest are just like, whatever, I don't care about this. I'd hope not, but you know, it's a possibility, right? The same thing happened when I just kind of dumped all my chips into the basketball thing. You know, I've been successful working with athletes from pretty much every sport, you know, and that's not to sound braggadocious at all. I think if you know me, that's not my personality, but across the board, I've been pretty darn successful with a ton of different athletes, but to say, look, I'll I'll train a handful of these other people on the side, but my focus going forward is on basketball. Like that's who I'm most passionate about. That's where I want to make inroads with. And that's the population I want to serve. All right. So here's the cool thing about this. If you do decide to put yourself out there to really kind of stretch your own boundaries and to tell other people that, hey, like this is the move I'm trying to make. The cool thing is if you buy in and you go full tilt, it's going to force you to grow. That's cool, right? Like it's going to force you to get better. It's going to force you to step up your own game. And sometimes we need that. Sometimes just kind of pushing ourselves you know, yeah, we're going to get better, but maybe it's not at the pace that we would like. So when we put that big kind of proclamation out there, like in my case, hey, September 3rd, this product's done. Like that forces me to get get everything done, right? Like dot your T's, you know what I mean? Dot your I's, cross your T's, make sure everything's done, get the product out there. All right. Now, instead of just giving you motivation, I want to give you some actionable items here, right? So if you're serious about putting yourself out there, about challenging yourself, about really trying to force yourself to grow. Here are some things that I would suggest and some things that I've learned over the years. Number one, once you've said it, right? Once you've proclaimed whatever it is you're gonna do, once you've put yourself out there, put your head down and get to work, right? You don't have to tell every single person you know. You don't have to post it on the internet. You don't have to remind people on the gram every day. Like once you've said it and once the world knows, awesome. Now get to work right? Like we don't need a daily update. If that helps motivate you, that's great, but we don't need it, right? All you need is that infused accountability that forces you, that drives you to get things done in a faster and a more efficient manner. All right. So number one, put your head down and get to work. Number two, when you start putting yourself out there, just get ready for this. You got to block out the noise. Man, when I was younger, and I was way more concerned with what people thought about me, people said some really nasty things about me. I mean, just, you know, luckily not too much on T Nation. That was generally, you know, fanboys or people that, you know, respected my work. But you went to some other parts of the internet and there were some people that downright hated me, right? So, you know, just be prepared for that, right? Steve Jobs, like rest in peace, but Steve Jobs, You know, for all the amazing things he did, he had a lot of naysayers. And that's true of anybody 
that wants to make a positive impact in the world or that wants to change things for the better, right? If you're going to try and create massive change, if you're going to try and do big things, it's going to come with its share of detractors. Just be prepared for that. Be okay with that and do your best to block it out because ultimately, you know, they don't matter, right? Those people probably don't matter. And then number three, focus on the end goal and learn to enjoy the process. For me, whether it's, you know, really diving into basketball full tilt, whether it's going back and just kind of creating this product from scratch, like no preconceived notions, what do I want this product to be? I've really enjoyed the process because I have grown so much, right? It's forced me to go back and like things that maybe I took for granted or things that I thought I knew inside and out. It's forced me to kind of look at them through a different lens or maybe think about how can I relay this better? How can I make this simpler? Okay, so it's not just about, yes, I've hit this target endpoint and I'm done and I'm a different person. No, it's not the endpoint that changes you. It's the journey along the way. That's what really changes you because it's you, you know, finding your stride, finding your confidence, being, becoming a better person as you grow and as you achieve, you know, this end goal that you've been looking for. All right. And, and it just reminds me of my boy, Gary V. I've never met Gary V. Uh, Jordan Syatt is somebody that I consider, you know, a friend, somebody that I look up to. I've got a great deal of respect for, but I love Gary and I love his approach in the fact that, you know, He's not worried about two days, two weeks, two months, right? He is playing the longest of long games. And that's the way I think about this too. You know, not what kind of impact am I going to make in the next two days or two weeks or two months, but what kind of impact can I make on this industry over the next two years, over the next 10 years, over the next 20 years? You know, by the time I'm 61, well, people have said, man, Mike Robertson, that dude, he put in a solid shift. Like he worked his ass off. He made this industry better. He helped all of us step our game up. And if, you know, enough of the population or enough of the trainers and coaches in the world can say that, then I'll hang my hat and say, you know, I've done a pretty good job with all this. But, okay, I'm waxing philosophical at this point. Put yourself out there. Challenge yourself. And, man, just see what you can do with your life. All right? So, Enough for me. Very philosophical, deep thought this week. We're going to have a quick note about the complete coach certification, and then we're going to dive into this awesome show with my boy, Eric Cressy. It seems like every day I talk to a young trainer or coach who is frustrated. Maybe they're frustrated with the results they're getting. Maybe they're frustrated because they don't have trusted resources to learn from. And maybe they're frustrated because they simply don't have enough clients and wonder how long they'll be able to stay in our industry. So if this sounds anything like you, I've got something that I know will help. My Complete Coach Certification was created for trainers and coaches just like you, who are serious about the results they get and know that becoming a better trainer or coach can directly translate to a bigger bottom line. This certification is gonna take the last 20 years of my life's work and put it all into one massive course. In it, you'll learn how to use the R7 system to create seamless, integrated, and efficient programs for clients and athletes of all shapes and sizes. How to create the culture, environment, and relationships with everyone you train so you can get the absolute best results. And the exact progressions, regressions, and coaching cues I use in the gym, from squatting and deadlifting to pressing and pulling and everything in between. Of course, there's a ton more that I cover, but that should give you a pretty good idea of what the certification is all about. Now here's the thing, spots for the certification will open twice per year for a limited time only. If you're interested in learning more, my next certification will launch in September. And if you join my free insiders list, you'll be able to save $200 off the standard price when it opens. To get on the insiders list, head over to completecoachcertification.com. Again, completecoachcertification.com and then stay tuned for our launch emails that'll be coming very soon. Thanks so much for your support and I hope you'll pick up a copy of the Complete Coach Certification when it launches. Eric Cressy is the president and co-founder of Cressy Sports Performance with facilities in Hudson, Mass and Jupiter, Florida. Eric has worked with clients from youth sports to the professional and Olympic ranks, but is best known for his extensive work with baseball players as more than 100 professional players train with him each offseason. Eric publishes a free blog and newsletter at his website, ericcressy.com, 
and has a podcast at EliteBaseballPodcast.com. More importantly, Eric is someone that I consider a true professional in our industry and a good friend as well. We've co-authored products and articles together, and he's someone I've constantly learned from over the years. In this show, Eric and I decided to go deep on the topic of shoulders. We start with how a beat-up shoulder from tennis helped him become a go-to resource for pitchers, the massive demands placed on the shoulder when throwing, an overview of his assessment process, how he blends movement quality with training savagery, the power of the lats in pro pitchers, and his current thoughts on arm care. If you train any overhead athlete, you should be listening to Eric, and we cover a ton of ground in this show. But enough for me, let's do this. Eric, man, thanks so much for coming on the show here today. Super excited to catch up. For anyone that's been living under a rock for the past decade or two, could you start by just telling us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, the Cliff Notes version is I am a strength conditioning coach by trade, and that has led into opening two facilities. We have one in Hudson, Massachusetts, and a second one in Jupiter, Florida. Our basically wheelhouse is baseball players. So we work on kind of not just the strength conditioning side of things, but also skill development. So do a lot of work in the private sector. We see guys from all 30 different major league organizations, see a ton of college guys, you name it. And on top of that, I, I do a little consulting for a major league team, as well as you know speaking and writing and things like that. And actually, even launched a podcast myself. Yes, um, you, you you inspired me, Mike. Yes. Um, so I'm, I'm far from an early adopter. <laughs> so, but yeah, that's that's me in a nutshell. I'm also a, a dad uh, of three daughters under the age of five, and an awesome wife who is way smarter than I am. She's a doctor, so I'm I'm a trophy husband. <laughs> I love it, man. Very cool. And what what's new since the last time we chat? I think it's been about a year since I had you on the show. So what's new since then? Oh, lots of stuff. I and mean, we have a new baby. So I have a five-month-old in the house. Yes. Um, so sleep is... I'm not sleep. Sleep is already at a premium, you know, being an entrepreneur and a father of two, but it's definitely even more of a, a premium with a with a third one added to the mix. The other thing that's that's big news is we got a, a new facility in the work. So basically, our our current facility in Florida doesn't allow us to do a ton of skill development stuff on site. So pitching, hitting, things like that, we've had to go to remote fields in order to do that. Whereas we did all our strength and conditioning stuff right in one place. We have a, a really cool public private partnership with the city of Palm Beach Gardens in in Florida, where we'll be building a private building on public land. And so effectively, we'll have all our own little spring training complex. There'll be a 10,000 square foot facility. We'll have two turfed agility slash infields that will also serve as Miracle League fields for a charitable component. We'll have mounds and cages basically attached to our building, which will be a 10,000 square foot strength and conditioning facility with kind of recovery protocols built in and all that. And then what's cool is on the north side of the building, we'll have a full baseball field stadium size where guys can go on field and take ground balls, you know, hit on field. What's nice about having that all in one place is it, it allows us to do a lot more advanced technology stuff. The you know, analytics and baseball have really taken off. So yep. we can be kind of at the forefront on, on all that stuff too. So it's, it's an exciting time. Hoping to be in there early or sooner than later, but it's looking like December of, of 2019 we'll get in there. Very cool. Very cool. Yeah. Well, today, because I, I don't think we've done this on the show before, I would love to just do a deep dive on the shoulder. So yeah. starting out, I think you have such a unique backstory here. Would you just give us some insight as to what originally got you interested in learning about the shoulder? Yeah, so I always joke like most coaches or people that are drawn to coaching, I was a mediocre athlete <laughs> and it, it forced me to dig a little deeper. What, what led me to shoulders balls was I was a tennis and soccer player growing up. I was a pretty good tennis player. I actually worked at a club for eight summers. I strung rackets, gave lessons, you name it. Filled in on a lot of old lady doubles matches and all that, but I had a I had a big like kick serve to the ad court, which basically means I I hit a lot of balls in bad positions, you know, externally rotated, abducted, you know, hand behind my head, and it, it beat up on my shoulder over time. So I managed to you know basically scratch and claw to, to be a pretty good player in high school. I was all state as a senior and. Got some interest to, to play in college. I was actually more interested in, in playing soccer in college. So that was the, the route that ultimately you know, kind of led me to where I went, even if I didn't wind up playing. But my shoulder was pretty banged up. And I, I continued to work at a, a tennis club all the way through college and then even into my, my summer going into grad school. And so that was the summer of 2003, where I finished undergrad and was thinking about going off to grad school. And my shoulder was, was super bad. I mean, it ached at rest, you know, pretty much all the time, whether I was playing tennis or not. So I went in, 
had some imaging done with a, with a doctor up in Maine where I'm from and basically diagnosed it with a classic internal impingement. So it was an undersurface rotator cuff tear. It was a, it was a partial tear of my supraspinatus. It wasn't, it wasn't anything super remarkable as I look back on it, but you know, I hadn't really necessarily had the, the best physical therapy experience. I mean, like a lot of people, I, you know, I worked at the school athletic trainer who was super well-intentioned, but you know, basically was, was stretched thin. And even when I went to physical therapy in the private sector, you know, looking back, I didn't, you know, get manual therapy. I didn't focus on scapular upward rotation. I didn't, I didn't really have a lot of coaching on the exercises I was doing. So I think mm-hmm. there were a lot of things that I was doing that were reaffirming my problems, that were plowing me into my symptoms. The other thing is I wasn't really counseled on what I could and couldn't do outside of PT. So I was, you know, for lack of a better term, I was throwing poop on the wall and see what <laughs> stuck in terms of my own training. So what I basically resigned myself to do when I left in the summer of 13 for grad school was, hey, we, we scheduled the surgery for the first day of my winter break. So my plan of attack was to take my final exam, drive home and have surgery in Maine the next day so that I would have basically that four week block over winter break to be in a sling, you know, before I had to go back to my next semester. And so I had this whole semester to kind of just either live with pain or do something about it. And what I did was I just dug really, really deep into, you know, learning about the shoulder, learning how it moved. I'd already had gross anatomy as an undergraduate student, which was a, a huge blessing in terms of looking at it a little deeper and just learned a lot about how it moved. And, you know, even looking back, I, I did some things that I wouldn't do now, but, you know, I, I think for the most part it was correct. And, changed the structural balance around in, in training, got my cuff working the way it needed to. And sure enough, I called my surgeon on October 31st, so Halloween of my first year of grad school after I'd been there two months. And I was like, hey, my, my shoulder's healthy. Like, I feel good. We, we can't do a surgery for a shoulder that doesn't hurt. You know, and I, I obviously wasn't playing tennis. I'd, you know, gotten away from overhead pressing. You know, back squatting was something that really, you know, at the time flared me up quite a bit. So I just I made some changes and, you know, it, it kind of paid off. And it just led me to keep digging deeper and you know, over the course of time, you, you help friends and coworkers and, you know, athletes with, with shoulder issues. And before you know it, you're the shoulder guy and shoulders became elbows, shoulders became necks. So you just dig deeper and deeper and keep like expanding your repertoire. And so that was 2003, it's 2019. I, I still haven't had shoulder surgery. You know, I've had follow-up imaging to look at it and my, you know, I still have, you know, a high grade partial tear that's a little bit more retracted than it was. So the writing might be on the wall. We'll see how it is in 10 years. Hopefully stem right. cells a lot better and rotator cup repairs have way more success when the time is right. But I'd, I'd actually even argue my, my right shoulder is probably my good shoulder at this point, you know, just comparatively similar to like, you know, somebody has an ACL tear, they rehab like crazy and their, their surgery side is the better side. Yep. Um, I learned, I learned a lot about how to take care of it. And so nowadays I can catch bullpens. I can long toss with our guys. I can do a lot of the things that I want to do. You know, it fits my lifestyle. So that's kind of how the shoulder interest started, but it just snowballed. And, and I had to stay on top of it just because we, we, we found ourselves in this baseball population and you have to, you know, basically, you know, roll the punches of what's in front of you and learn as you go. Absolutely. Absolutely. And now let's take that experience and make it specific to baseball. Could yeah. you break down the needs and the demands that are placed on the shoulder when you're throwing or even more specifically, maybe when you're pitching. Yeah, absolutely. So one of the things that we know is throwing a baseball is the single fastest motion recorded in sports. It's about eight, uh, sorry, 7,000 degrees of internal rotation per second. And so it's the you know, equivalent of like the humerus internally rotating 360 degrees 20 times every second. So it's crazy fast velocity, you know, tons of anterior shoulder stress, medial elbow stress. If you look at the layback position, you know, when basically the, the arm is max external rotation, it's the equivalent of having about 40 pounds pulling down on the hand, you know, in that laid back position. So you get a lot of valgus stress along the medial elbow. You obviously get some some compressive stress on the opposite side of the joint as well. So you know, Glenn Freisig has done some awesome research at ASMI to to really demonstrate those those numbers. So you know, really, what we're, what we're looking for when we deal with our our throwers is how do we distribute that stress accordingly? How do we get multiple joints to share that stress? How do we prepare people for it, knowing that it's it's not fundamentally healthy for them? How do we manage volume? How do we manipulate the recovery equation to make sure that they're bouncing back well? And you know, how do we look at both you know acute and chronic workloads to figure out what works for each individual player? So it's it's an enigma. I mean, you can you can yeah. look at Major League Baseball, and there's hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars you know wasted on guys on the disabled list, but that's what what keeps us in business. <laughs> <laughs> right. So new pitcher comes to you and yeah. wants to start working together because I know you get people whether it's you know, the trailing end of the season now or into the off season, what is your evaluation process look like? And and maybe to make that a little bit more clear, because I know people want to know, what does it look like from a a pure discussion perspective, just like banter back and forth and feeling that, that 
athlete out and how much of it is an actual like physical evaluation? Yeah, absolutely. I, I would actually say there's there's three parts to it. Okay. Um, the first part of it is is everything that takes place before they get there. So in many cases, that's a conversation, whether it's myself or my business partner, you know, to basically effectively prospect them to make sure, you know, like, like any client, you want to make sure they're a good fit for you and all that stuff. But I always try to be really proactive about getting as much information as I can. So if you look at like now in Major League Baseball parks, you have you have Kinetrack systems, you have Simi systems. These are things that give you in-game biomechanics stuff. And in many cases, big league guys will have that data. They'll have access to it. They wow. may have tra- TrackMan stuff, spin rates, all those things. So maybe you want them to bring that. Radiology reports, bring them if you've got them. would love to know. Really anything there, post-op reports if you're someone that's coming after a surgery, physical therapy notes are another big one. Last year we had a, we had a kid who had a, a Bennett's lesion removal by, by a well-known doctor in the U.S. and then he went back home to rehab for six weeks in kind of the middle of nowhere USA. And so I got his post-op report as well as his physical therapy notes and they were, they were rehabbing him for a subacromial decompression, which is a totally different surgery on the Yikes. opposite side of his joint. So it was kind of a <laughs> – a good example of like, all right, we've missed some really bold stuff because people don't understand throwers. So I always want as much information as I possibly can. It's, it's funny. I just finished the book Range. And yeah. it, one of the things they talk about is, you know, generalists uh, in many cases thrive and they pick up on things. When people ask what I think we do well, I think I'm a good conductor that oversees a system with a lot of synergy. And what that means is if, if you want to talk about velocity-based training on our staff, you talk to John O'Neill. You know, if you want to talk about – you know, pitching mechanics, Christian Wonders is your guy. If you want to talk about pitch design, Kyle Driscoll is your guy. If you want to talk about movement training, Cole Driscoll is your guy. All that stuff, I, you know, certainly I'm the expert in, in certain places on our staff. But what I think I do really, really well is pull all those things together. So I, I do well with a lot of information. I don't get overwhelmed. I'm, I'm kind of good at connecting the dots. So I, I try to play conductor as best as I can in advance so that I have an idea of what's going on. The day they arrive, obviously they bring that stuff with them. There's also health history that, you know, that they fill out. So that we're going to go over everything from medications they're on, you know, including, you know, were you on Volterran all season? Are you an Indusin guy? Whatever it was. We want to go over their whole injury history, all that stuff. And then we want to have a candid conversation that may range from, you know, where do you get sore after you throw? You know, how many innings did you throw this year? What are the things that you struggled with mechanically? Were you, you know, missing fastballs off an arm side? Were you throwing accidental cutters to the glove side? Was your slider inconsistent? You know, those things uh, are, are super important. Obviously, talk about pitch mix just because that, that speaks really, really heavily. If you hear about a guy who always cuts his change up or, you know, loses his change up periodically throughout the season, like that can tell you a lot about how he's moving. So those are all really big things. So the conversation itself, you want to dig really, really deeply. Another side of that is, is asking like what's worked and what hasn't from a training standpoint. Yep. You know, getting a feel for like, you know, were you at a college that was just literally like, squat bench clean, um, you know, and we'll see those guys. So, yeah. you know, you're, you're always trying to find windows of adaptation in your conversation that, you know, you can solidify with your, your follow-up screen. So once we've gone through a ton of that stuff, where our assessment will usually be, you know, a combination of, I mean, it'll always be a combination of both specific and general screens. So we start in the office shirtless, static posture stuff. From there, we'll do shoulder abduction, flexion, um, external rotation with the arms adducted. We'll do a toe touch. We'll do a push-up screen. We'll do SFMAs, both their neck screens as well as the single leg balance tests in the office. I do that just because I don't want to parade guys shirtless around the facility. Um, and we're all in there, so it's a little bit more private. And from there, we'll head out on the on the floor to our tables, and we'll do you know a collection of range of motion measurements, both shoulder and hip ERIR. You know, look at active versus active straight leg raise, lumbar locked rotation. So there's a TPI screen component of it. You know, shoulder flexion is something we look really really closely at overhead squat, overhead lunge walk, you know, so basically a, a lot of stuff that, you know, I think we use across multiple populations, but we maybe just see through a different lens in the baseball world. One that I've been looking a lot closer at probably since this past off season is lateral flexion. You know, looking for guys who have a lot of tissue extensibility issues through quadratus lumborum. That can be a really big issue for, you know, for certain guys. And it goes hand in hand with some of the, the PRI stuff, not having right apical expansion. So that's a big one. And then depending on time of year, there may actually be like a skill-specific component of it where we'll actually do like an exit bullpen with guys. And this can be really impactful for kind of setting the stage for what guys are going to do over the course of the rest of the offseason. So as an example, we had a – not to dig too deep into the baseball analytics side of things, but we use Rapsodo, which basically gives you spin rate, spin efficiency, spin axis, yep. you, know, you know, vertical and horizontal release point, all these good info. And we had one athlete that came in 
who's a guy who's he might be our most athletic minor league player just like jumps out of the gym you know crazy strong guy i've seen him like reverse lunge 315 with a front squat grip for a set of five like it's nothing (laughs) and he was a guy who you know, he's like 96.7 in his exit bullpen off of a turf mound indoors Dude. with nobody in the box, which is which is elite arm speed. And he got hit last year a yeah. lot. And we, we talked about it. You know, what was what's the scoop? Tell me what they were telling you and all this. And you know, he said, my two seem really like like grades out. Well, they said they didn't like my four seam as much. And he, he came in and he ripped off like a, you know, almost like a twenty five hundred RPM four seam, which is an elite spin rate. You know, those guys tend generally tend to do really well pitching up in the zone. His spin rate on his two seam was like 2,200, 2,250, very average. So it wasn't like an elite two seamer. We, we talked a lot about like, hey, this is probably not the best pitch for you. Like, you know, throwing four seamers down isn't going to work. And, you know, your two seam is not good enough to play down in the zone necessarily. So we, we made that as like a big change for him. And sure enough, he's, he went out. He was a, a league all star this year. He you know, jumped from high A to double A. He's had a, like an amazing year. So that was a, awesome. you know, a, a methodology approach. And it's not uncommon to what you see. I mean, the Astros did it with Garrett Cole. You know, they're already doing it with, with Aaron Sanchez. These aren't surprising things, but you'd be shocked at like in these big organizations on a skill development side of things, how many guys maybe aren't given the best information. And nowadays you can do more. Like you can go to fan graphs. All these guys have access to true media and their organizations. And, you know, I sat down with another guy. I was like, look at these numbers. Like you have an elite changeup. Like you should be throwing it substantially more. Like <laughs> right. see, see this slider you're throwing. It's not good. You think it's good, but it's really not. So those are some of the things that I think we do a lot more of. So I, I often kind of like hold a, you know, I put it out there that I, I don't really think anybody matches the synergy that we bring to the table in the in the private sector for the baseball side of things, because we have people from sports medicine, we have people, you know, from you know pitching specific aspect of things, people from the hitting specific side of things, and we have access to a lot of this advanced analytical information. But we all talk. That's yeah. the difference. All, the, all those same things are present in Major League Baseball organizations, but there are always silos where people don't communicate. You know, I think you take that, you put it on top of our, our network, whether it's, you know, agents or, you know, specialists and things like that. And you know, we're in a really good position to kind of like carve out this niche like we have. I love it, man. So let's take that assessment and walk it into program design, because yeah. I know one thing that I love about what you do is you guys, you understand the shoulder, you understand the biomechanics, but you still train, right? Like yeah. I think you and I, like maybe we got pigeonholed early on. Maybe yeah. that's why we overcorrected and power lifted. <laughs> Lip, they lifted still think it. we're the same, pe- same person. I, I know, <laughs> I know. But so how do you take that? Like what considerations would you make for someone that wants to get in the gym? They want to train like a beast, but at the same time, be smart and protect their shoulder. Yeah, you know, for me, a lot of it's driven by where they are statically. You know, if, if they're relatively neutral, they move really, really well, it's – kind of have at it like that's a guy where right. I, don't, I don't care if he wants to do some dumbbell benching and stuff like that right but you know if it's a guy who's you know an aggressive scapular depression like throwing a bunch of heavy weights in their hands for heavy deadlifts and doing farmer's walks and walking lunges and lots of pull-ups and things like that you know those are things that could be potentially problematic but i would say if i if i was looking at some like good general guidelines for people who want to push baseball players hard in the weight room while respecting you know their unique adaptations and functional demands the first thing i would say is you have to emotionally separate yourself from what an athlete should look like right mm-hmm. don't think nfl combine maybe think tom brady at nfl combine i don't know but, <laughs> uh, but the, the, the point is that these guys in many cases are successful because of characteristics and traits and, and movement quality more so than just raw athleticism so a 38-inch vertical jump won't guarantee that you'll throw a baseball hard or hit home runs. Um, I have a 650 deadlift, and I don't use my hips very well when I swing a baseball bat. So, right. you know, those are things that you have to keep in mind. So, first thing I would say is, is always prioritize things that allow the shoulder blade to move freely, meaning you know, cable presses, landmine presses, push-up variations, stuff like that. Over anything where your shoulder blades are locked down, so anything that's like bench press oriented, dumbbell bench press, even those are you know things that. We, we know pitchers lose scapular upward rotation over the course of the season. So we don't want to feed into that. The other thing is we know most guys get very, very laddy. So there's an interesting like conundrum with respect to the lats in baseball development. If you look at research on basically EMG in pitching, we know when we look at young guys, they don't use their lats very well at all. They actually tend to rely on rotator cuff, biceps tendons. They look at stabilizing muscle to create, you know, basically movement, which is a, a bad strategy. And we know that 
professional pitchers use 200% more lat recruitment wow. than amateur pitchers. So it's it makes sense, right? Your lats attach on your thoracolumbar fascia. You know, a small percentage of the population actually attach on the ilium. So they transfer force from the lower body up to the, the humerus, right? Mm-hmm. So you need those guys to do a big muscle. So they're really involved during the acceleration phase of throwing. What we see a lot with our you know, our high level pitchers, I, I, there's not a big league pitcher out there who has weak lats, right? Right. They all have dense, nasty fibrotic lats that are overused because they're so efficient at using them. And that's a, you know, a fundamental problem because all of a sudden those lats start taking over, you know, they're, they're the only core stabilizer used. So everything's extension driven. You know, all of a sudden you start substituting scapular depression with the lats for scapular posterior tilt with the low traps. The other thing is your lats attach further down on the humerus. So they have to be offset by like a really strong rotator cuff. Otherwise the, the arthrokinemax, the rolling, the rocking, the gliding, the joint are thrown off. So what I think a big change is you, you need to worry less about making lats strong and more about making sure that you know how to tone them down, have good extensibility, have them relaxing in the, in the, in the places they need to relax. But you just don't need to have like a great pull up numbers for big leaguers. Whereas, you know, if you have a 13 year old kid who's trying to throw harder, chase it by all means go for it right so you know i think those are two big ones also appreciate i use the analogy if i give you a cigarette today you don't get lung cancer today and and it doesn't <laughs> it doesn't hurt you today right right but if i give you five cigarettes a day for the next 30 years yes you might have lung cancer and programming for pitchers is very very similar right it's whether it's you know incorrectly performing rotator cuff exercises or you know doing a cable row with the wrong technique or doing lots of lat dominant stuff when you don't need it these are all things that might not acutely make you hurt but they feed into a dysfunction that could give you a lot more trouble longer term so i think that's a a good place to kind of like start those three things is it's the technique and the exercise selection. It's not always prioritizing strength. Sometimes it's extensibility and it's make sure those shoulder blades move freely. Yeah. I think that's such a great point because too often we get caught up in like the big massive like traumatic injuries. And sometimes you, you fail to recognize the fact that it sometimes it's just death by death by paper cut, right? Mm-hmm. Like the things that yes. you did in the off season or across multiple off seasons are now yeah causing this person to have consistent injuries as they go on in their career. Yeah. I look at even like the back squat setup, right? I mean, you look at the classic injury mechanism for throwers. It's, you know, obviously it's external rotation with abduction over and over and over again, whether that's medial elbow, whether it's bicep center. Here's what I can tell you. I'm, I'm an extreme case of internal impingement, right? I've got right. a massive undersurface rotator cuff, you know, issue. I've got a, a cartilage defect in my humeral head and I've got a slap tear in there. So, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm banged up. Right. I can tell you that back squatting, my shoulder hates. Yeah. Right. And, but you also realize like there are a lot of like power lifters who wind up with cranky elbows from that position. It's just, it, and to me, it went in a world where we have every safety squat bar imaginable, you know, out there with giant camera bars, we have the front squat grip. If you don't have access to all those things, it, it's like, why would you possibly waste your bullets on that? Right. Why would that, would, would that be like the mountain you're going to die on, you know, in the, in the context <laughs> of baseball, like, you know, we can debate so many other things, but that's just, it's a no brainer. There's nothing you can do to tell me that, Hey, if this guy back squats instead of front squatting, he's definitely going to go to the big leagues faster. Right. It doesn't make sense to me. Yeah. Well, while you may not have been the first, I know you are definitely one of the most popular people when it comes to talking about arm care and espousing the need for arm care. And one thing I know you're always doing is kind of evolving your approach. So as of today, are there any specific things that you feel like you must address when it comes to arm care with your throwers? Yeah, there are a lot of things. You know, having adequate scapular upper rotation is a big one. And, and that can be something different for everybody. Some guys will start really low and they actually need to prioritize like upper trap and get elevation. Some guys will, will you know, be more anteriorly tilted. They need posterior tilt. Some guys just kind of elevate and don't have the rotational component that you would get from serratus anterior. So it's different for everybody. I would say just about everybody can benefit from finding posterior tilt. That's the one that you know unifies a lot of them. Yep. Um, that and, you know, the rotational component, getting good serratus function. I think those are, are absolute no-brainers. I think another one is looking at, you know, a comprehensive approach to rotator cuff strengthening. You know, what we forget is that your rotator cuff is very reflexive in nature, right? If you go yep. pick up a suitcase, it fires, right? It's right. there. But we also know that there are scenarios where, you know, the, those tissues get beaten up over time. And certainly that neurological link probably gets, you know, kind of a little bit haywire where we need to do some reminder stuff. So we, we have kind of three different categories that we look at with respect to our, our cuff strengthening stuff. So we have our classic 
you know, get it strong, right? That's man resistance, that's cables, right. stuff like that. And, you know, bands are, you know, I would put in that category more so just because they're convenient. We yes. honestly don't use a whole lot of bands in our actual training. We use them more for like guys are on the field using warm up stuff. The second category is going to be a lot more of your like timing stuff. So rhythmic stabilizations, 90-90 ER holds, ER-IR transitions, stuff that teaches people how to quick, you know, fire it quickly, right? So if you, that, that would be analogous, analogous to like training plyos almost, right? You know, yep. you're going to back squat heavy, right? And then you do a, a jump squat, all these different things. So I think those are, you know, two broad categories that are really important. I think the one that's, that's really overlooked is motor control. And I, I view it much differently in those first two categories. And what it really comes back to is, you know, it's, it's kind of the, you know, the blending of FRC and, you know, SFMA and, and FMS is like, if you have a lot of passive restraint uh, range, but you don't have control of it, you're in trouble. Right. And what we see a lot in throwers is we see tons of passive external rotation, and they don't have active control of it. So you might put a guy on a table, he's got 130 degrees of external rotation, but if you put him in prone and you actually ask him to actually rotate against gravity, he might only have 80. So that window right there, like if that was an active straight leg raise, you'd be freaking out <laughs> thinking he was going to pull his hamstrings. But you know, it goes overlooked all the time with respect to throwers. So we do a lot of end range holds, end range liftoffs, you know, just supine and prone extra rotation through that full range. We're making sure people actually feel their posterior cuff instead of, you know, just hanging on their biceps tendon or into your shoulder as they go through it. So I'd say it's it's three categories. You know, I think there's some the motor control you can train every single day. Yep. Um, we we usually tend to train the strength twice a week and then the you know kind of the timing twice a week. There are scenarios where I'll I'll do stuff almost every day. I've actually had some good results with like a a six day a week arm care program that we do separate from our actual training. And then there's other stuff. You know, there's you know bottoms up carries, which kind of like for me go hand in hand with the the strength day. You know, your scapular control drills that obviously are are high priorities. But at the end of the day. The number one arm care advice I can give you is instead of doing 25 exercises with shoddy form, do three or four really, really well and teach things how to be centered and you're in a great, a great place. And, and if you're doing that at the end of a session, like how long is that going to take? I mean, are we talking like five, 10 minutes? Are we talking like 15, 20? Like how big of a piece is it in the part of like a daily program? Yeah. So it's, it's, there's two ways, you know, if it's done on its own, it might be 20 minutes. Right? Yeah, sure. But done as part of a session, I use it a lot as fillers. So maybe okay. they trap, trap our deadlift and they do a TRX serrated slide. Then they go goblet reverse lunge on the slide board. And then they do a prone trap raise, ISO hold, you know, then they do a lateral lunge and there's a 90, 90 ER hold. And then they've got, you know, some kind of core exercise paired with a rhythmic stabilization. We've hit their entire session. It's eight exercises, four of which are, are arm care. It makes the most of their day. You know, so and then usually there'll be a med ball, whether it's you know actual power development or a balance exercise. You know, it's kind of part of their pre work as well. So maybe able to work extra fillers in there. So you know, you're just you're making use of of what would otherwise be wasted time as best you possibly can. I love it, man. So kind of on this this same topic, these days breathing and resets are huge topics in the world of not only sports performance but general health as well. So yeah. if someone came to CSP for training, what yeah. kind of role would breathing and resets play in their programming? Yeah, you know, we always get these these questions, and I always come back to you know it's one to two percent of our overall right you know training file. It's it's not a let's all lay on the floor and blow up balloons for the next hour. You know, that's, <laughs> right. that's not exciting to a teenage athlete when there's you know rage against the machine blaring in the background. Right. So what I come back to is you know it's usually a it's one or two exercises after the foam rolling before the start of a warm up. We're just trying to get them back to neutral, and then the goal is you know our warm up and our training session should should not only put them in neutral, it should keep them in neutral and make it easier for them to acquire neutral for the long term. I want them to be less anti-neutral next time they walk in, you know, where yeah. we shouldn't necessarily have to do these forever. I think that's part of it. But I think on the breathing side of things, what I like about it is it, it you're, you're using it to do, you know, both you're, you're reducing bad stiffness while adding good stiffness, right? You exhale fully, you get great recruitment of external obliques, rectus abdominis, you get some serratus anterior in there, all that good stuff you want. But you're also toning down, you know, lats, scalene, subclavius, a lot of those accessory respiratory muscles that you don't want to be all fired up. So you're, you're taking the bad out and you're adding the good. And that's why I think there's a place for it, you know, not just in terms of, you know, how we warm up and how we try to prepare, but also like, you know, with core training exercise, you can do a half kneeling cable chop and add a big exhale at the end of each rep to kind of own that position a little bit more. Okay. So uh, this is actually going to lead me to kind of a tangential question, but we have seen 
I feel like a lot of kids, like, because we don't get the pro population that you do, we may get one or two in every offseason. But what I've seen a lot here lately are these high school and college age kids. They, they're really good, whether they're baseball, whether they're softball. But a lot of them, I feel like their college programs are driving them into this massive, just sagittal plane dominance. Yeah. Is that something that you find a lot with, with new people that are coming in? And how do you kind of you know, educate them and let them know, like, look, like maybe that stuff is valuable, but we need to be able to rotate to be successful at our sport. Yeah, there's no doubt about it. I think Stuart McGill came on my podcast recently yeah. and, you know, talked about the difference between NFL linebacker spines versus, you know, elite golfer spines is, you know, there, there are spines that are conditioned to rotate and there are spines that aren't like, I'm actually joking. It's funny. I'll pull this, put this out there right now. Like my, I talked to our hitting coordinator, Will Middlebrooks, our, our, we just brought on staff in Florida. I was like, Hey, I want to, I want to hit home runs this off season. Like I've been picking heavy stuff off of the floor. I've literally conditioned my spine to do everything but rotate for the last <laughs> like 15 plus years of training. Like I want to start like actually being athletic. So we're going to see how it actually plays out, like how much this training actually carries over. It'll be an interesting test of, you know, Vladimir Zatsky-Orski's delayed transmutation. But, <laughs> yeah. um, you know, I, I think there's a, there's a point, right? You need to have a strong sagittal base. There's no doubt about it. The question is, what is that base? Like, I can tell you I don't have any need for pro baseball players to deadlift more than 500. Right. If they get to that point, they're already in a pretty good spot. So, you know, there's that side of it. But, you know, I, I do think there's a place for building a strong foundation in these young, you know, high school kids. Is You know, I can tell you when a high school kid trap our deadlifts 405, like he's, he's markedly differentiated from his peers. And that, that puts mm. him in a really, really good place to be successful. And I think it's even more prevalent for our – our, our teenage, you know, female athletes, where strength is even, even more powerful differentiator just because not as many girls lift, unfortunately, at that age. So I think that's, you know, something that, that we have to keep in mind. I don't, I don't want to like throw the baby out with the bathwater. Sure. That, that foundation is awesome. But what I do think is, is we have to give them adequate movement variability, right? Yeah. And I, and I think that's, you think about it this way, we, we all sit on our soapbox and we talk about how important movement variability is. The single best way to you know, to, you know, there's, there's research that shows that random practice is better than block practice, right? Mm-hmm. For skill acquisition long-term, like what's better random practice than playing a different sport. Yeah. So, you know, I always come back to that's where, where non-specialization works so well is that you take that baseball player and you make him go play pickup hoops or, you know, ultimate Frisbee or something like that. There's, there's a lot of variability that can make a big difference. So I think we need to have that in the weight room as well, because we have few and fewer kids that are playing other sports nowadays. Yes. So it's not enough just to put on somebody on a 16 week squat program. Like anybody can get somebody strong. Like it's not hard. Otherwise, you know, we wouldn't see as many people who are really unathletic doing well at powerlifting meets. Like, let's be honest. So, you know, when, when, when I come back to it, I always, I always say that, you know, I love the idea of, of how we rotate programs on a monthly basis, right? We're going to sacrifice a little bit on the top end strength than if we just trained that all the time. Yep. But we're going to gain so much more proprioceptively in terms of positional awareness, the ability to get in and out of positions that I, I think that's really, really big. What I think we do have to put ourselves in the shoes of that college strength coach, right? Yep. Is if you have 30 athletes all arriving on the same day and maybe a third of those athletes you've never seen before, like that's like drinking through a fire hose. So it's, right. it's a tough situation to be in. And I understand why maybe they don't add a lot of variability, you know, to their programs just because they want to basically stick with the stuff that they know is safe. And I don't fault them for that, you know, particularly in the early stages. But I think one of the things that you have to do is once you've built that foundation with people, you do have to give them more opportunities to deviate from it. So, you know, there's a place for throwing the med ball, rotational rows, Turkish get-ups, all that stuff. And it's, it's not easy to teach that to 30 people at once. So yeah. we have to keep in mind their, their, the system they've been placed in, not just the physiological demands that we want to change. I, I think college strength coaches, you know, they're, they're put in tough dynamics. You know, I've certainly seen situations where they're in the wrong, they're not open-minded to right. – things and they're, they're doing things that are fundamentally incorrect for the athletes. But I, I also get to interact with a lot of who I think are really, really well-intentioned. You know, we, we also forget like we're in the private sector. Like we, we can work with our athletes as much as we want. Right. There's no hours limits. There's no academic counselors that are, you know, knocking on the door to the weight room to pull somebody out to bring them to study hall. Like we really have kind of like the ideal scenario, particularly because we're often getting them in the off season. Yep. I think it's a lot tougher, in, you know, in the in-season realm when you're, you're in a you know larger bureaucracy where there's a lot more moving parts. So I think we have have to be sensitive to, to what they go through, but at the same time, continue to push people to be progressive and, and realize that it's not just as simple as building a big squat and bench press. There's a lot more to it. I love it, man. Great answer. All right. So a long roundabout answer. I apologize. No, no, no. It was great because you're absolutely right. And, and 
in some of the interactions that I've had with, you know, these strength coaches, part of it too is like if they send home a summer packet, like they have to kind of just do stuff that they think that the kid or the the athlete can do yeah. on their own. Yeah. Right. Like they're not going to have supervision or it's like their old softball or baseball coach is their strength coach. So yeah. it's it's a tough situation, but I loved your perspective on that. So, yeah. And those are always like interesting to see. Right. Like we saw. I mean, I remember there was like a, a junior. I don't know if it was, I think it was a hockey player way back in the day. It was a female athlete, you know, and she was like a U14 or U15, whatever it was. And they had like barbell inverted rows, four sets of 10. I was like, do you know what a barbell inverted row for an untrained 14 year old <laughs> is going to look like? She might, she won't get four sets of one, right? <laughs> like, right. No matter how much you bend her knees and all that. So those are the programs I fall that, that are just, you know, photocopied generation after generation handout. But you know, what's sad that happens in physical therapy too, yeah. right? It happens in, in every aspect of everything. So that's, that's unfortunate. Yeah. So I'm going to ask this question because I guarantee people want to know the answer. What's the biggest difference between training or coaching and up and coming prospect, the guy that's, you know, a high level college player or a, an elite talent versus, you know, a, a truly elite level pro like a Max Scherzer or a Corey Kluber? What are the big differences there? You know, I, I would say that, you know, the motivation aspect of it is, is a big one. You know, I, I, I'll be honest with you, I'm, I'm not a motivator. Like I, I don't right. aspire to be a motivator. I, I don't. Uh, maybe that's that, that seems like pretentious to say, but you know we've we've had enough success in our business that I think there's a pretty good velvet rope around it, you know. And, and what we find is that, it's particularly on the pro side, the the guys that aren't serious about working hard, they tend to weed themselves out. That that velvet rope is, you know, you got to be in here to bust it. Otherwise, your 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 training partners are going to call you out, you know. And certainly, there's benefits to being in the private sector. People don't pay you unless they want to be there, right? It's, it's yep. totally different if you're working in professional baseball or in the college setting where you get what they recruit. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, that's I'd say that's one big difference. You know, certainly that's the that's the difference between some of the high school athletes and some of the professional athletes. Like very rarely do I ever have to motivate. Usually, you know, I, I just have to direct professional athletes. They they require far fewer coaching cues. In many cases it's a one or two word correction and things get substantially better. Whereas on the high school and younger side, maybe you, you have to spend more time feeling out their learning styles. Yeah. Um, you have to be really careful about overwhelming them because they don't have context. They haven't right. done it for long enough. So you know, I, I think that's probably a really, really big difference. And you do have to motivate more on the younger side is that a gym isn't naturally inspiring to every high school kid. They don't just love the idea of doing it, but you have to make them fall in love with the environment, keep things upbeat and all that stuff. The other thing I would tell you is to build on that is pros are not all the same, right? So you, you mentioned like Scherzer and Kluber and I'll throw like Syndergaard in there too, right? Those three yeah. are, you know, all you know, super successful guys. They were all top 20 wins above replacement pitchers on the planet last year. If you look at Max, Max had a much more refined routine. He's thrown 200 innings plus, something like seven years in a row right now. Like he, yeah. it's, it's, it's more, you know, crystallized in his mind. So it's more of a tinker. Max, I think, leans on us more to like give him feedback just to, you know, it, it, you know, basically refine it as he's gotten older and had to change things up. You know, I think he leans on you to, to, you know, as someone he trusts where he wants you to be honest with him. I told a story on, on one of our podcasts, like there was a day this past off season, it was like a Thursday when Max came in for a lower body lift and he just like didn't have it that day. You could tell he was dragging on a newborn was, you know, crying all night or something <laughs> like that. And you know, he came in and at the end of the session, I gave him a fist bump. I was like, Hey man, sometimes you just got to get him in. And he was like pissed at me, like legitimately, like, I want you to call me out on these days. Like, don't just give me a free pass. Like, if you think I'm dragging, like, bust my balls. And wow. I respect him so much for that, right? He's, you know, making a ton of money, had a ton of success. You know, there's so many guys that would just coast and he's looking for people to be like brutally honest with him because so few people really will. Yeah. So that was like a, an eye opener. Like, this guy wants to get better and it's hard to get better when you're already the best of the best because nobody will shoot you straight, nobody will challenge you. Right. So respect to him for doing that. But Max was much more refined in terms of, of his reproach because he was already, you know, 33 years old and successful at the time I met him. Kluber was markedly different. I, I had Corey dating back to double A. So we've, we've been working together over 10 years now. Right. So we, we kind of grew together. I've learned a lot from Corey, you know, way more than he could have ever learned from me. And he's an unbelievable communicator. Corey's very much a tell me what to do and I'll do it. Like, you know, he'll communicate everything, how he's feeling, all that stuff. And you'll brainstorm the solution together. And the second it's on paper, he does it to a T with like robotic 
accuracy. Like people call, joke about him being the clue bot. But it's robotic in the sense that he, it's so meticulously detailed to a T. And he was a great example of like you, everything, like you, how you practice is how you play. So like game one of the 2016 World Series, I was there in Cleveland for it. It was like freezing cold that night. It was like 35 degrees. There's a there's like a live band outside because the Cavs were getting their NBA championship ring next yeah. door. There were so many people in a small area that you couldn't even send a text. The cell phone towers were like all overwhelmed. And I watched his pregame and he's out in the outfield and there's like 200 kids from Cleveland area holding a massive flag in the outfield. And he's like long tossing basically like over kids in the outfield to warm up for game one of the World Series, the biggest game of his life. And it was like nothing was happening. He locked yeah. everything out just because, you know, you, you trust your preparation. He, he went out and he set a World Series record. He punched out eight of the first nine guys he faced in three innings. Like, and he got a win through like six shutout that night. So it was just one of those things where I was like, man, like there's a guy that attention to detail is so insane that when the day comes, he can trust his preparation all the way to the max. Hmm. And, and to like bring that to like a close, Syndergaard is a nerd. Like he loves <laughs> training, nutrition. I say that in the nicest way possible. Yeah, no. You know, people think Noah's just like Thor and you know, he throws 100, so he must be this big dumb oaf. Like, no, he's actually incredibly bright. He's incredibly well read. Um, he's trained with a lot of like bright people in the industry. He's been exposed to powerlifting. Like, you know, he talked about being exposed to Tim Tebow and learning about his nutritional approaches. And like, there's a guy who tries to draw wisdom from a bunch of different approaches. He can tell you what kind of manual therapy he likes and what he doesn't. So, with Noah, like, before we write a program, he'll send like a request, like, a list of his requests like a week out and we go back and forth on it and his buy-in is better because he has an active role in the planning process. Right. And I love that. So all those guys are totally different. They're all super successful, but it's just, I think it's a really important, like you have to earn the right to be to that position, right? You have to follow the, follow a program long enough to learn what works for you, you know, to, to kind of have that kind of relationship. If you're not somebody who can train consistently, you're not motivated. You never really get to that point. Yeah, no, that's great, man. All right, my guy, last but not least, let's crank through our lightning round, okay? Yeah, you got it. Four quick questions, starting with number one. You mentioned it up front, but I want to hear a little bit more. Talk to me about this new facility. Yeah, so it's pretty exciting stuff. came about just because we're kind of like a, a tourism destination. We bring a lot of folks to the area because they move from all over the country. And basically, it was a, a good opportunity that the city of Palm Beach Gardens is looking to become a destination like that. And we needed a, a great spot where we can do a lot of our baseball-specific activities outside and you know expand our offering. So it was just a perfect fit. So it's, it's one of those things where I think when we get in there, it's going to allow us to to really change the game even more than we already are. Um, we're really excited for it. So yeah, 10,000 square foot facility with base our own spring training complex surrounding it. And that's going to happen this December? That's the plan. They've already broken ground. Wow. Right now, they're just moving a lot of dirt around and frame, <laughs> framing out the foundations, but we should be full go. So everybody cross your fingers and pray for no hurricanes in South Florida this fall. <laughs> right. And man, I bet you guys are so stoked to move all that stuff. It's going to be awesome, right? I'm not excited at all. <laughs> it's great. It's great for your traps. Moving a gym will make your traps sore for like three weeks. So, yes, I love it, man. Okay, number two. What qualities do you look for in an intern? Ooh, in an intern or an employee? There's an important differentiation. Well, um, give me both. Give yeah. me both. Just just a quick couple quick bullets. So, in full disclosure, I actually don't do any of the intern interviews. Um, yeah, I, don't I do actually have pay. zero involvement. I have zero involvement in selecting our interns. So that's probably a better question for John at our Massachusetts facility, Pete at our Massachusetts facility, and Tim at our Florida facility. So those folks are the gateways. So I would say a history of finding value in unexpected places. I, I love that. Okay. Um, so you know, those are always good opportunities. Like people who who learned you know, unique skills in, in places that you never would have expected them, stuff along those lines. So I like people with unique skill sets. They don't all have to be like the exercise science student. Here's a recommendation from my academic department chair. Right. I coached at a YMCA camp growing up there. The resumes tend to be very homogenous. And so I like people who are different. We like to embrace the weird just a little bit. <laughs> um, other things I love, I, you know, I, I always love getting resumes from from our athletes who have trained with us previously, who are deciding to pursue a, a career. Um, yeah. Those folks always seem to do well. In our demographic, obviously, baseball players are really good. And you know, the other thing I love, I love female applicants because we don't get enough of them. And and I I think you know that's something that we need to help the industry along, especially particularly now that I have three daughters. I, I think I look at it even closer. But I I love having female you know intern applicants and and, and strongly encourage more of them to reach out because unfortunately that you know. We, we get 95% dudes um, yeah. 
who reach out and we want to make sure we give people really good opportunities in that regard. I love it, man. Okay. Number three, what's the hardest part about balancing world domination in business and raising a small family at home? I mean, you, you hinted at it yourself. It's the balance. It's understanding right. how to be present in all that you do. I, I think probably, you know, that leads the, the hardest thing is learning how to say no to things that you don't want to do. Right. Yes. You know, it's the era now, like everybody has podcasts. So like, I like coming on yours cause we're all buddies and we talk, and, right. You, know, you come in with great questions, and everything. And, but you know, I get five podcast requests every week. So, <laughs> you know, like the thing that's hard is, you know, I, I don't give my cell phone number out to high school kids anymore. Like that was born out of the fact that I was, you know, getting text messages from guys on the West coast at midnight and things like that. Right. You kind of have to set boundaries and it's just because everything has to be scaled. And so the best example I can give you is we had, we had a guy who, who texted me yesterday. He's like, Hey, do you have five minutes to, to chat tonight? And you know, it was a, it was a college athlete that we trained. He's a great kid. I love him. Works his butt off and all those. And I was like, Hey man, just being honest. It was like, if we can do as much as we can by email, that would really be helpful. Usually I'm going to be emailing you links to articles or videos to help you along. I may be recording a video to send to you. So if we can do that via the email medium, that's great. You know, and, and certainly it allows me to get to it when I have time as opposed yeah. to us connecting on the phone. And what people don't realize is like when you have kids, you, you get this, right? You yes. leave the gym. You, you race home, usually like dinner's cooking, your kids run to you at the door, you're all excited, you want to play with them, you're gross, you want to shower before <laughs> you play with them. Yes. Uh, so there's that side of things. So there's such a limited window. Your, your wife, you know, maybe not anymore, but my wife wants me to just take the baby, she's screaming, hold her. Um, <laughs> she physically can't get on a call. Right. Um, so you're, you know, you're not going to call them during dinner. And then you probably have, you know, for us, that's like 630 to 7.30 is like family time. Like the only person that gets a call during that time is Grammy if we want to FaceTime with her. Right. So 7.30 happens, then you're helping with baths, which really takes you to like, you know, bath and book gets you to like 8.30. And really like, I, I like to go to bed by 10. Like right. I really, I have an hour and a half and usually I want to talk to my wife. There's usually like maybe a baseball game on that I want to watch one of our guys as a starting pitcher. And there's probably work to do. So like the chances of like me being like, yes, I want to give you a half an hour on the phone tonight. It's right. just like, it's, it's, it's unfortunately not a reality. You have to draw some lines in the sand because if you give five minutes to one person, you have to give to everybody. So I, I really try to prioritize that as much as I possibly can. And, and you know, I, I always come back to like, you know, I, I hate phone calls because I do so much work between five and 7 a.m. Yeah. Like I can't, I can't call people at the, that hour. So I right. try to shift as much as I possibly can away from my phone, both, both phones and uh, both calls and texts. I'd rather have emails. So if anybody has questions for me, email is always better. <laughs> it's way better than Instagram direct message too. Yes. One more place where I have to look. Oh my gosh. No <laughs> doubt. No doubt. All right. Yeah. Number four, last yeah. one. What's next for Eric Cressy? Ooh, I'll give you a couple. So in the short term, we run our fall seminars at our Massachusetts facility. It's September 21st and 22nd. It's kind of a two-day offering this year. We also run our business mentorship, which is on the Monday, the 23rd. So if folks come to the business mentorship, they get free admission to the, the fall seminar. So we kind of like are shifting to like a day and a half, you know, in, in this particular year is kind of like a new way to test things out. So it's, yeah. you know, 10, 10, 10 hours of CUs uh, for folks. So it's a really good one. So that's in the short term. The second thing that's even more exciting is so we've run our our elite baseball mentorships since 2012 it's myself eric schoenberg as well as our pitching coordinators at our massachusetts facility so we had folks from all over the country everything from baseball coaches to physical therapists to athletic trainers to strength coaches come out here to learn about how to you know rehabilitate uh, train throwers you name it and you know hitters as well so one of the things that we're going to do is actually we're going to finally put that online part of oh, the very cool so that's very much in the works. It's, it's something we deliver, we fine tune the product. As a frame of reference, in all the times that we've done this, we've never gotten a blow an eight out of 10 on an evaluation on any, wow. any one of the presenters. So it's, it's so fine tuned and, and it's so unheard of in the industry that we're really excited. We wanna make sure we share it with a larger audience. So we're gonna put that online starting this fall and roll it out over the next couple of years. There's a lot of different modules that highlight some of the individual expertise that we have on our staff and the baseball demographics. So really excited about that. That's awesome, man. And if you can send me links to yeah. those, I'll make sure I get those in the show notes so people can Absolutely. find them. So. For sure. Well, Eric, you've been awesome today, my friend. Always great catching up. Where can my listeners find out more about you and all of the myriad of things that you have going on? Easiest bet is ericcressy.com for the website. That's where the podcast and newsletter and blog are all housed. And then for Twitter and Instagram, it's just at Eric Cressy. Man, must be nice having a unique name. <laughs> Somebody had Mike Robertson snatched up, so I didn't get those. But again, my guy, thank you so much for coming on, man. It was really great catching up with you. My pleasure. I enjoyed it. Thanks for having me.
friend that does it for this week's show with eric sincerely hope you enjoyed it like i said up top he's a guy that i've been friends with for years we've collaborated on projects together but he's somebody i just have a massive amount of respect for and he is getting it done at the highest levels of sport so so much respect for eric with that being said if you enjoyed this show and if you know somebody that could benefit from eric's message whether it's a fellow trainer, another coach, or perhaps an athlete that you know or that you've worked with that has shoulder issues, please share this episode with them because I feel like it could make such a positive impact on the outcomes that they're getting or on the results that they're going to see. So as always, thank you so much for your support. You know I love and appreciate you, and we will be back soon with our next episode. Take care.